0: Welcome to Vision Driven with Resin Architecture, the podcast where we dive deep into the world of architecture, development, and construction. I'm your host, Greg Croft, and my co-host is Jamie Moulton, and we are thrilled to have you join us on this journey of learning, inspiration, and insight.
1: When you talk about real estate, I would always recommend that you go into it with the exit in mind.
2: Advice I'd give somebody that's presenting their case or pitching their their loan to a bank, it's just to be really well prepared.
1: Whether you're dreaming of building a space for your business or simply curious about the fascinating world of architecture and development, join us on this exciting adventure as we unlock the secrets to successful projects and empower you to turn your vision into reality.
0: So our guest today is John Stanquist. John is a commercial and real estate attorney with more than 20 years of experience. He began his career in Houston, Texas, where he represented large clients in complex legal disputes and transactions. And now he's a shareholder with Parsons Bailey and Latimer, where he represents clients in Idaho, Utah, Wyoming, and Texas. And he's here to talk to us today about uh, the role of an attorney on a commercial project. So we're excited to have you here. Thank you for coming. And uh, just to get things rolling, what brought you into the
2: into law? Like, what what sparked that interest? Well, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I I have always been interested in you know problem solving, dispute resolution. I had a few mentors when I was younger who were attorneys, and I was exposed to it. And so I decided I'd give it a shot. Um, I was. Initially going to be an accountant and maybe get my MBA and maybe a JD MBA, but I decided to go the shorter route and I just got my law degree, but I ended up working for an accounting firm doing international transactions for a while in Houston. And that's how I got my start.
1: So we're really trying to speak to an audience that is interested in building their first commercial project, maybe a building for themselves. Uh, to own or occupy, maybe something that they can lease. Can you tell us the roles that a lawyer has in a transaction like that?
2: Sure. Um, we will get involved when uh, many of our clients have business partners. So it's always important to have an operating agreement or some kind of partnership agreement with your business partners. Some people do it on their own, but if it's their first project, they usually have some kind of investor or other people who are going to uh, work with them. And uh, I always say that it's easy to get into a marriage and hard to get divorced. It's easy to get into a business relationship. But as you do that, you need to really decide how are we going to end this relationship? Are we gonna buy each other out? Are we going to allow other people into the investment? And how is that going to look when maybe one member of a, a company is older and is winding down, or are they envisioning a long-term relationship? So it's always important to understand not only that you're going into business with someone, but how does it work when we get out? Is there, what happens if there's a death, if there's a divorce? If there's uh, one, one partner becomes insolvent, how does the other partner buy that commercial property? And we see that a lot, a dispute as to, how do we get out of this deal we got into? Because, you know, on day one, everybody's friends, we have big dreams and hopes, and we all um, expect that it will be successful. But what happens if it's not? Who's going to take over? How are we going to get out of this? And so a good operating agreement with some good termination and unwinding provisions is, is very important. That's the first thing. Uh, the next thing I would, I would look at is how does, how is the financing going to work? Many times you have one of the partners has more assets, more net worth. Um, Are there going to be loan agreements between the two partners or the multiple partners? What are the loans going to look like with the bank? And we oftentimes see people borrowing money or guaranteeing loans, and there's a lot of work that needs to go into the financing side of it. As a borrower, you have more rights than a guarantor. So, for example, a borrower uh, can protect themselves through what, in Idaho, it's called the one action rule. And lenders are only allowed to collect debts by looking at the real estate first. And after they've sold the real estate, they're required to give the borrower full credit for the fair market value of the property that was maybe foreclosed. As a guarantor, you don't have those rights. A guarantor may have to come out of pocket and pay it out of their own cash reserves, or the lender may decide to go after a guarantor's house first instead of going after the commercial property. So as you look to borrow, you have to think, okay, what is the lender going to do if things go badly, which is when the attorneys get involved? The lender should look to the property first and the borrower second, but if you're just a guarantor and not a borrower, the lender can look to the guarantors first and the property second.
1: Is there ever an advantage to being a guarantor?
2: You know, I don't, in a commercial context, I, I can't really think of one. I, I do believe that whether or not you're a guarantor or a borrower, you have to disclose that debt in future loan op- applications. Sometimes you think, well, I guarantee a bunch of debts and that won't affect my finances. But I think technically as a guarantor of loans, your financial statements need to really show you as a borrower because that is an outstanding liability. I can't really think of many instances where uh, a guarantor position is better than a borrower position. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you have an LLC, that the, the members of the LLC could Uh, become co borrowers. So you have an LLC that owns the property, you have two members of, of the LLC, for example, and they could be co borrowers instead of guarantors. But I think the standard paperwork that a lender might put in front of you is the LLC is the borrower, and the members are the guarantors. And obviously, to the extent that the LLC is solvent enough, perhaps the lender will just take signatures from the LLC and a security interest in the building. But in my experience, they typically want everybody involved on the hook for that loan. I I guess
0: uh, in addition from the, the legal side, we don't work a lot with lawyers uh, as architects, but the times that we have seen it a little bit would be um, like if there's a larger development that's being put together, typically you guys get involved on the um, kind of the covenants and things like that, that are being uh, kind of thrown together. Um, what other pieces do you see from from that end where it's like yeah, a, a lawyer should have been involved or could be involved a little bit earlier in the process when maybe
2: everybody's actually still feeling rosy? Right, I, you know, I think it would be good to get a real estate lawyer involved to review the title report and just see what exceptions the title company has listed on the title report Uh, become aware of the easements that may exist. If you're starting with bare ground, for example, and it's not a development lot, uh, you want to know where the canal company's easement is and whether or not there are existing utility easements where you want to put your building. And just go through the process of looking at the property itself to ensure that your building will work on the specific on the specific property, and so lawyers will get involved in that. Certainly, if there is already a subdivision in place, uh, a, an attorney could look at the uh, CCNRs, any covenants, restrictions, guidelines, and ensure that that works for the works for the the applicant, the bu- and the builder, and then have a good. Uh, you know what I've seen a lot of times is the builder builds the building that the customer requests and the customer requests a building and then neither of them are really clear on who's going to read the covenants. And you go down the road and you think, Oh, well, the setbacks are, are, are 20 feet. feet." Yeah. the, The setbacks are larger than what the city or the County require and neither party read the covenants. The builder thinking, well, my customer would have told me, And the customer thinking, well, the builder should have read this and it just kind of slips through the cracks. So having an attorney involved sometimes helps um, or just being aware of those issues and ensuring that somebody involved in the process is is looking at that. You know, the architect, you'll design the building, you'll have it all ready. And then it's the it's maybe the builder and the owner who decide the exact location. And maybe you guys didn't read. The, the, the CCNRs where the setbacks are. And then obviously it would be your job to coordinate with the owner to ensure that your designs comply with any design requirements. If there's an architectural control committee that they have full sign-off, if you're going outside of those that you have the, the right people signing off of any variants to the CCNRs. You know, I've, I've litigated cases where maybe the president of the homeowners association signs off on a variance But the covenants require that the board meet and the entire board agree so just being careful that you're in compliance with the ccnrs even i mean i was i was involved in a case where judges have said you know we might have to remove this building and and that's a pretty scary uh, situation for everybody we we do
0: put on on commercial projects we always have a site plan with all the setbacks thrown in but uh on residential i could see that occurring based on
2: the napkin sketches I've seen right before they get approved. So right. well, and for residential, uh, the legislature, uh, has made it clear that homeowners associations are disfavored and they've now put a lot of burden on HOAs, residential HOAs in particular to hold meetings and comply with, um, uh, the budgeting requirements. And uh, you, you know, there's limitations get, on what you can. The red tape, sort right? What, of thing. Yeah, there's limitations on what you can assess for. So the legislature has become heavily involved in HOAs, essentially telling the public we don't like them, and uh, we're going to make the HOAs jump through a lot more hoops. So that's been an issue as well.
0: Um, okay. So my next question, uh, when a business owner decides to build a facility that they're going to be the owner occupant, like owner occupant, you know, 50 plus percent or, or more, um, do you get in and kind of advise them on the, the different aspects of that process? So they're going to have a tenant. Maybe they're going to be probably should put a lease together for themselves because it's likely a separate LLC that owns that, um, from, you know, both, a I think a legal and a, a tax perspective, that's typically how we've seen it done. And then what kinds of skills do you need? Would you recommend a lawyer
2: have for kind of navigating those waters? Yeah. It's important to have leases in place. And if you're owner occupied, uh, it's, it's good to have a lease with yourself. I mean, essentially right. an LLC that owns the building and then an LLC that operates the business. You don't want those liabilities to cross over between the two entities. And, and to do that, you need to ensure that you have what we call a corporate veil. So we have corp- distinctive corporate operations. We have separate bank accounts. We have, um, a lease in place, and those kinds of things. So if, if someone tries to pierce that corporate veil, maybe liabilities for their operational company to try to get to the real estate, you can say, no, we are a standalone company. We follow the, the processes correctly. We have our own bank accounts, we have our own meetings, and we have a lease in place with the operating company. It's important to have leases for all of your tenants and also uh, to figure out in a, well in advance what the CAM charges are, the common area maintenance charges. So that your tenants will pay for part of the snow removal, part of the you know the parking lot maintenance and the landscaping maintenance, so that it's it's known in advance, and so you have those in place. Um, putting together a budget for long term maintenance is important. You know when is how, what's the useful life of the roof? How often do we have to stripe the parking lot? And put those funds in in various accounts and budget for those, so that when you do sign a lease with a tenant that uh, you're not caught by surprise when you suddenly have an ordinary maintenance issue come up significantly a roof or maybe, you know, a a new parking lot or something. Yeah.
1: So it sounds like some of the skill sets that would be helpful when choosing a lawyer to help with these type of transactions would be a familiarity with the uh, different charges that will be need to be included in the lease. Can you think of anything else that a lawyer should be familiar with uh, when they approach helping a first time developer?
2: Well, I think, um, a lawyer should be familiar with a lot of accountants in town because the accountants are going to drive the bus for a lot of these things, you know, the accountant's going to give advice. Maybe you talk to your builder about the useful life of various aspects of the building and make sure you have a maintenance plan in place. So having an an accountant involved in the beginning of the process to work with your builder and and look at your long-term budgets is important. Um, I also think that your, um, a lawyer needs to be familiar with um, construction contracts. So at, at some point, the owner will enter into an agreement with a contractor to build. And you guys will pro- provide a design, there'll be a budget, and contractors will often have standard forms that they use. There are national forms, AIA agreements, and things like that. But just to really understand uh, in the beginning, what's going to happen if we go over budget? How do we deal with change orders? what is the warranty like after we, after we close, who's responsible for um, increases in materials and costs, which is, has been a a big issue. Uh, Sometimes, sometimes people get into a construction contract and believe that it's a set price because there will be a number. But as you read through the fine print, you realize it's not set. It's not really a set price. It's really a goal. And that, that, And and certainly the contractor does not want to be tied down to price increases, but the owner will believe that they have kind of a a fixed cost, not understanding that materials have not yet been ordered and paid for, and prices do move, and subcontract subcontractors may change, may may the subcontractors themselves may be different, and then uh, the cost may go up because of their costs, and we've seen that with our recent inflationary environment where people just blow through their budget. The home builder or the owner of a, of a commercial contract is looking at it thinking, how am I going to afford this? I thought it was going to be X and now my, my costs have increased. So early on, I think everybody needs to be prepared for, uh, change orders, increased costs, and just understand where is this money going to come from? Most lenders will bake into their loan some variants they'll certainly not some the the contingencies um but even then our environment has outstripped even some of the lenders estimates and it's it's been a problem so um understanding what your contract is and what and what it means and we've also seen issues where there's not great communication between the builder and the owner and the builder kind of understands that they're over budget and they're running over budget the owner may not understand that sometimes builders become a little bit too optimistic and and think, well, we'll make it up. We'll make these over, overruns up later on in the project. And sure enough, inflation is, is across the board. And, and, and and so the owner should really communicate with the builder. Are we on target? Where are we off? Uh, what's lumber doing? What, what are tile, you know, what, what does it look like? Do we need to lower our, uh, lower our budget in some some areas to stay under budget for the whole project so it's really important to communicate lawyers really don't get involved until everything's gone south until the communication is broken down until there's some misunderstanding of the contract but having a lawyer involved in the beginning can can kind of alert people to those issues what would the
0: what would you consider the next steps to be or what would you recommend the next steps for a business owner as they prepare to build their own
2: space Um, certainly hire good architects, good accountants, find a good builder, um, a reputable builder, um, get a good lender who understands your finances and that you can work with. And, um, and once you have those people in place, then you can utilize your attorney to help with the contracts, maybe have them read the loan documents, talk to them about the issues between guarantors, make sure that a lawyer has gone over, um, your business, your business dissolution plans, in your LLC agreement, and you know we can certainly read any contracts between them and the architects, between them and the contractor, and make sure that everything um, covers them as they move forward. So having all of your professionals in place, and then to the extent you need help, um, ask for a lawyer to to maybe review things and and go over the different contracts that you're signing. Yeah, I would I would imagine that even having that up front, then it's
0: like, oh, I've got a have re- got a lawyer that I'm already working with. If there's anything that pops up as a red flag during construction or during the design that it's like, hey, is this, is this normal? We can have a conversation and, and they've already got that
2: relationship and a little bit of that background knowledge that you've got on that. So. Yeah, I think that's, it's always good to have, have your lawyer familiar with your project and what you're doing. And in my experience, you know, legal fees are not a significant portion of the cost. If you think about, you know, 6% realtor fees and and the builder fees, maybe a cost plus 10% contract. Um, the lawyers, in my experience, were, were not ever really 1% or 2% of the of the project um, in overall cost. But be, usually because the, le- the lawyers are paid up front in cash and maybe they're coming in with uh, maybe – um, not the greatest cast position. They they may scrimp on the lawyer, and then you know kind of regret it in the end. But you know, my involvement in construction uh, throughout in these these projects is relatively minimal compared to the grand scheme of the project.
1: Is that uh, is the the fees that you are discussing are are they hourly fees for the amount of time that you spend? on a project or is it a fixed fee for we will oversee the project for the life of the project?
2: Uh, m- mine are typically hourly. Um, I'm not sure of anyone who does a fixed fee or a contingency fee on a construction contract only because everyone is is so different and who knows what's going to be cropped up. It's hard for the lawyer to take kind of the risk of the unknown. But, um, you know, the, the hourly fee I think is oftentimes better than a set percentage because, People are going to err on the side of, you know, overbidding a percentage than just charging an hourly fee. And if things get a little messy, it will get more expensive. But, you know, reviewing contracts and, and giving general advice is typically not something that should break break the bank.
1: Can you think of any red flags that might indicate that a, a certain business is not quite ready to start construction for their own space and they should continue leasing?
2: You know, that's, that's a good question. On the financial side, obviously, the accountants are going to say a lot about, you know, are they overextending themselves? Do they have these great dreams that they can't really afford? From the legal perspective, I think um, people need to just be aware of the risks, the, the the problems with just general partnership disputes. Everybody needs to be getting along, be on the same page. Everybody needs to be kind of pulling in the same direction to ensure that the the project is uh, successful. From a legal standpoint, when someone comes into my office, maybe there's two or three people, one or two people. I I want to make sure that they're in complete agreement about everything. Let's resolve our differences now. What is your vision? Do you have the same vision? What does it look like on dissolution? Who's putting in the money? Are you okay with that? How are you going to get your money out? Once the business starts making lease payments, are we allocating those appropriately within expectations? uh those kinds of things that people aren't really thinking about that will cause problems down the road. Um, let's talk a lot in the beginning about how this is going to look. I want to see that everybody's kind of in agreement as as the lawyer moving forward, and then obviously just uh, business experience, financial well being is uh, you know another aspect.
0: What can you perceive from from your seat? You've probably seen a a, a plethora of. Of legal suits, um, in the construction realm, in the in the real estate and construction realm, what do you feel like would help mitigate those? I mean, beyond some of the things that we've talked about, where it's like, yeah, if you have a good agreement up front, then. But what else would uh, do you see that could help mitigate some of those, those arguments that pop up,
2: or, um, yeah, does it
0: really come down to good contracts?
2: good contracts having a good contractor an experienced contractor a good builder that's that's key uh having a sufficient budget to deal with our inflationary environment right now is is important especially if we anticipate that interest rates are going to rise and we've seen we've seen some people not be able to afford the house the finished house that they started because interest rates have 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 risen and they didn't lock in their rate for example Um, I know that there's a lot of risk as a first time commercial owner, there's a lot of risk of the unknown and you're, frankly, you're not very good at it. And so if you have a lot of good advisors around you, especially a good builder, that's great. One way to mitigate that risk is, is seek out maybe a develop, a developer who will give you a turnkey product for a set price. And maybe that builder will reap the benefits of maybe higher margin, but they take all of the risks. So you could go to somebody in a, in a development in a commercial area and they have they have their pads available, they have their lots available, and you say, look, I don't wanna deal with construction, I don't wanna deal with contractors. If you build this for me, what will my lease payment be? And maybe not the cheapest option, but certainly the one that mitigates the risk because you can lock into a set lease payment, a set price, from the outset and then you can just worry about running your business and not worry about being a being an owner builder at the same time which frankly if you think about someone who's operating a business their greatest value is the business that they know and then if you're going to add on top of that why don't you learn how to work with a builder and and build your own building um in your free time that's that adds a lot of unnecessary stress so sometimes just Pay a little more and get the product that you want at the end, and uh, focus on your core business and your business acumen and make more money during those times that you would normally be spending um, building a building.
1: Are there suits associated with owning a building that uh, owners need to be aware of and avoid? I'm thinking about uh, compliance or injury or um, access. Various. uh, What does a lawyer play a role in protecting a building owner from suits like those?
2: Well, my my first and my first advice is always get a good insurance policy and get a list of uh, the additional coverage options that the the additional riders that the insurance company can provide to you and there's riders for almost anything and just say, look, what do I want to be protected against? Do I want to be protected against ADA lawsuits? Do I, you know, do I want to be protected against additional things? Maybe, um, employee, employee lawsuits, uh, sexual harassment lawsuits. And so, uh, a relationship, we haven't talked about this yet, but a relationship with your insurance provider is very important to say, I want coverage for all of these unknowns. I'm willing to pay a little extra uh, to to be covered for these things. Um, you know, having a builder that has a good relationship with the city or county, wherever you're building is important. Um, they do a good job, this, the city does a good job, the counties do a good job of inspecting properties, ensuring compliance with the current code. Uh, that's part of your job too, is to ensure that your designs comply with the ADA and other and other things but um as far as from my perspective i would much rather an insurance company come defend a client than the client come to me and have to pay out of pocket for some incident obviously there's a lot of unknowns but a good liability policy and a good dno policy um kind of employment policies really do help and then ensuring that you know you get all the sign-offs and And things from the from the city and the county and you can you comply with the code is very important um
0: you'd mentioned earlier um, homeowners associations um and we we come across those and design review boards pretty frequently in what we're doing so my question is is with them like what kind of authority do they have like legally what kind of authority do they have and how how, how have you seen, are there any interesting cases that you've seen in, in that regard where um, there's, you know, some arguments that, that
2: maybe they are overstepping their bounds? Well, um, there's, there's kind of a seminal case called uh, Adams versus, I think, Kimberly One Townhomes, and it was in Boise. And this case was a set, a set of townhomes near the football stadium. And during home games, one of the owners in, in the association would rent out his townhouse to people there to attend the football games. And if you can imagine a lot of drinking and people stealing vegetables from the neighbors and staying up late because it's, it's a football party. And so the homeowners association decided to ban all short-term rentals. And this was kind of right at the beginning of of the Airbnb, VRBO craze. And um, so the homeowners association said, guess what? You cannot rent your property. Even though previously there was nothing in the covenants that prohibited it. They just made up a new covenant. And that case was litigated and went to the Supreme Court. I personally thought that the Supreme Court would say that homeowners associations can't regulate the use of your property. Idaho is very pro-property owner. We encourage the free use of land. And unless there's a specific restriction in a zoning ordinance or a CCNR that you know about when you buy your property, you should be able to use it how you should, how you want. But the Supreme Court, they came back and said, no, homeowners associations have the authority to take away that property right and can require that you have long-term rentals only. And that kind of sent shockwaves through the legal community because the because the Idaho Supreme Court sided on the side of homeowners association, essentially indicating that homeowners associations are very powerful. And that decision that Kimberly won, Adams versus Kimberly won, had many repercussions. The following year, maybe the following legislative session, the legislature um, undid that and said specifically in the statute that homeowners associations do not have the power to regulate short-term rentals unless it's already a rule in, the CCNRs at the time you buy it and every owner in the subdivision sign off on it, not just a majority vote, which is normally or a supermajority that you see in a lot of HOA. So every single person has to agree and essentially sign off on the fact that their property cannot be rented on a short term basis. Uh, that has progressed to what I mentioned earlier. The legislature has, you know, limited homeowners associations even more. And this short-term rental question is, is probably the hottest rent, the hottest issue with homeowners associations, but homeowners associations, um, because of that Kimberly one town, uh, Kimberly one decision, um, the legislature only reacted to the court's decision on short-term rentals. They really, the legislature didn't do a whole lot more other than try to force HOAs to act more like cities. But what it tells me is that our current supreme court if you if you had a case our current supreme court would probably side with the power of the homers association unless the legislature has somehow un, undone that and so um homeowners association, homers associations are very powerful i will say however that um, because we have a public policy of free use of land in idaho that the the ccnrs the covenants and the restrictions are construed against the drafter and um, are not given if there's any ambiguity at all, the court doesn't have to really follow it. So in the cases that I've seen where a homeowners association is trying to enforce something, that enforcement provision better be very clear. Otherwise the court doesn't need to enforce it. If it's a little bit vague, it's probably not enforceable. So you mentioned that you started your career out
0: in Texas. So where... Um, tell me a little bit about the background from that firm and then what brought you to Idaho and, um, and tell me about the current firm that you're at
2: too. Sure. Um, well, I w- my father was born in Idaho falls and my wife is from Idaho falls and I've always enjoyed, you know, the lifestyle and the lack of traffic and the lack of incredible heat of Houston. But, uh, I came here about 20 years ago, um, started working for a law firm called Moffitt Thomas Barrett Rock and Fields. And uh, about six years ago, that firm split into sp- split up and a group of us went to our current firm, Parsons Bailey and Latimer. They, we have nine offices in four states and 185 lawyers. We have experts in mining and banking finance, air quality experts, uh, patents, intellectual property, uh, lots of corporate lawyers, lots of litigators. And so, um, my firm now is is fairly large but it helps us to garner resources and get answers to questions faster because we have a wide area of expertise so are the are the specializations that you guys have
0: are those somewhat regional or do you kind of have a specialist i mean in, in real estate construction you probably have specialists pretty much in every office but
2: mining, I imagine is, right. is maybe less so right so our, our Salt Lake office has a lot of mining attorneys and our Reno office has has mining attorneys and we have uh, some uh, dental and medical specialists in our Lehigh office and um, some tax specialists in our Missoula office. So we do have specialists kind of spattered throughout you know throughout our various offices, but we have a large Boise office. It's very supportive, big water law uh, group over there in intellectual property. So it's been nice to be part of a larger firm. So I don't have to know everything. I just have the resources to find out answers to questions and help clients. We found that um, prior to Parsons Bailey and Latimer coming to Idaho Falls, a lot of the more sophisticated businesses and questions went to Salt Lake because that's where uh, the larger firms were. And it's nice to have a larger firm here in Idaho Falls. We really enjoyed being part of that group.
0: About how many lawyers are here in Idaho Falls?
2: We have 13 lawyers and four paralegals in Idaho Falls. And then we just opened a Rexburg office with several lawyers. And we're kind of looking to expand from there. We, we've run out of space in our current office and we're looking for more, more space. and <laughs> to
1: design and- a new one. <laughs>
2: We'll have somebody design us a larger space. Yeah.
1: Well, our final question to all of our guests is always, if you had one piece of advice that you would give to someone who is starting off on the journey of building a building for their own business, what would your piece of advice be?
2: Um, it would be, uh, find the best contractor you can get references, go look at, other buildings that they have built and constructed, maybe talk to those owners. I think in our environment where we've had this construction boom, we've had a lot of newer builders and inexperienced builders. And I've seen a lot of problems where maybe someone has come out of a trade and become a general contractor thinking they can do it on their own. And owners have not done the due diligence necessary to select a reputable builder look at their prior projects, look at their history, get references, and to kind of top it all off, make sure that that contract between you and the builder is, um, sophisticated, not verbal, uh, contains all the provisions that you think it should, should contain. Uh, I can't tell you how often we'll have a one page construction agreement or a two page construction agreement and everything else is verbal. And then when something goes wrong, the lawyer is stuck with trying to figure out what the true agreement between the parties is. And that's a very expensive endeavor.
1: So along those same lines, uh, our emails, our texts, uh, those type of, they're written agreements, but it's not signed and official. Do those add to the contract or are they not binding?
2: Well, that's an expensive way to enforce an agreement.
1: (laughs) by by
2: by using text messages and emails to prove your case and so uh, typically uh, you are stuck to the four corners of your construction agreement unless there's an ambiguity in that agreement and if there's an ambiguity you can look outside the agreement to resolve that ambiguity texts and emails are typically disclaimed most contracts have what's called an incorporation clause where it incorporates all the terms all of those texts all of those discussions all of the phone calls should be incorporated into the four corners of those documents. And if that document is unambiguous, you don't get to add additional evidence. It's only if there's some kind of ambiguity in the contract that the court needs to resolve. Okay, we'll go look at the emails and texts. But again, that is a very expensive way to enforce a contract by having missing terms, ambiguous terms, and then trying to supplement with testimony and out of context Texts and incomplete emails, and all of the things that you deal with in litigation, it's very expensive.
1: Well, thank you so much for helping us to understand how a lawyer can add to the clarity and simplicity of a commercial project. You're welcome. Appreciate it. My pleasure.
0: Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to Vision Driven on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave us a review. Your feedback helps us grow and improve our content, and it also helps others discover the podcast.
1: Remember, at Resin Architecture, we are dedicated to teaching and learning and are committed to helping business owners like you navigate the exciting journey of building. Stay tuned for more episodes where we'll continue to bring you engaging conversations, expert insights, and actionable advice to fuel your real estate aspirations.